Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Daily. This is episode three of a special election series and features Greg Cook, aka Mystic Greg, who was Labour's head of political strategy. Worked for the party thirty years, and in the time that I was working there, was regarded as something of an intellectual and polling god. And he's someone who really the whole country should know because this is one of the true experts of British politics. But unless you work for the Labour Party or you know people who work for the Labour Party, you follow these things really, really, really closely. This will be the first time you've heard from Greg, which is a real treat for for me to be able to bring him to you because he is fantastic and understands politics on a on a. I hate the phrase granular, but that that's the sort of level I mean. He, he understands it on a really, really deep level. He can extrapolate things in a way that other people can't. He's been at the heart of. The Labour Party for so long uh, has immense experience, advised various leaders, and his expertise has been crucial uh, in the direction of the Labour Party, particularly in the uh, period when it was uh, winning. So we get the chance on this podcast to feature people that other people can't get or wouldn't ask or whatever. But I, Greg Cook is one of those people that should be on telly every week explaining how and why things are happening. So it's an Honour to have him on this show.、Uh, I began asking Greg about his rather grand title,、uh, former title of Labour's head of political strategy. So, head of political strategy is a great. I mean, that's the sort of job title <laughs> that people dream of. It is, yeah. And、I've, it's given me, a, you know, I always start with the tedious old line that I wasn't actually in charge of Labour Party strategy. Um, as far as I was aware, the leader of the party at that time was, although I'm not sure that's the case now. But、um, uh, yes, it was、uh, the actual job was about、um, polling and about ana- analysing elections and about being responsible for having some idea what the electorate thought about things. But it was certainly a great title. I think I might have invented it myself and persuaded the general secretary to、uh, attribute it to me. So b- <laughs> prior to working for the party, what was your first job working for the party? By the way.、Uh, My first job was as the secretary agent of Mitchum and Morden Constituency <laughs> Labour Party,、um, which I started in 1988,、um, and I did that for about five years. And that basically was being the admin. I was the secretary of the party as well as being in charge of all the campaigning.、Um, you know, the most notable thing I was responsible for was fundraising, which in those days we used to do by selling scratch cards door to door. So I had to raise my own salary basically, <laughs>、um, and.、Uh, I obviously I was in charge of election campaigns locally, and I did the 1992 election for the wonderful Shavon McDonagh, who、yeah. still is the member of Parliament for Mitchum and Morden. I'm confident will be re-elected there.、Um, and then after that, I moved on to head office. So then, in terms of your 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 focusing in on polling and things like that, where did that passion come from? I don't know really. I think like 
you know, most boys, I was into maps and numbers and things like that. <laughs> so uh, my first election I kind of re- recall uh, was back in February 1974. And uh, we had the, I think we had the day off because my school was a polling station or something. And I, for some reason, I read The Guardian. It's not something I do nowadays, but um, they had a big map of uh, all the constituencies. And after the results came in the following day, being a bit bored over the weekend... Uh, I coloured them all in in red and blue, and so I got this unhealthy knowledge of the geography of the country. Um, but I was kind of just hooked by the process, I think, out of that. Just elections are really exciting things. You know, they bring the country together, and everybody's, you know, everybody wherever they are has got this, basically the same choice in front of them. So it fascinated me. It's interesting you mentioned maps because I'll never forget after the 97 election. The first, well, I remember 92, but 97 was the first one where I was really, really, really into it. Looking at the map of Britain the following day, and it all still looked really blue. Yeah. Because Conservatives, <laughs> you know, have rural seats and all these Labour ones are packed in cities. And then when you saw, like, a political map of Britain where the constituencies are, are done on equal size, yeah. it looked far more impressive. Um, That's right. My, my blue pen got much more wear than my red one when I was colouring them in. So in terms of the things that shape elections and, and, the, and, the, and in terms of the way the country thinks about polling and sophology and things like that, we've heard phrases like Worcester woman, Mondeo man, and apparently this time it's Workington man. Yeah. Are those things helpful or are they complete rubbish? They're, they're a bit of fun and they give, they give colour to things. They, you know, they make things three-dimensional. I think in cephalogical terms there's not much merit to them, to be honest. I mean... Um, Obviously, the media pundits will always try and focus things down on understandable sort of bite-sized um, concepts like that. But elections are just incredibly complex things. You know, there's millions of people, all different parts of the country, regions and constituencies. That's what's interesting about them to me. It's the diversity of it rather than trying to kind of read too much unity into it, really. But is there around Workington Man, so this idea that... Um, and we've heard the phrase, the Labour wall. So you're talking about those... those, those Labour traditional heartlands, northwest of England, um, places where you're talking about white working class blokes in apparently you know who like rugby league instead of rugby union. It's not a sport I know well. Is is there a is there a nugget of truth to this working to man thing that there's a type of person that if the Tories get they will win the election? Well, there's a nugget of truth in the sense that uh, there's a long term trend certainly over the last couple of elections for the Tories to. Um, do better in places, you know, white working class areas, what people call post-industrial areas, ex-coal fields and so on. But the places themselves are so diverse. I mean, I, I find the Workington one quite bizarre, really, because Workington is a lovely place and it's not really like any other constituency in the country. Um, you know, the, the, there are kind of clusters of seats and you look in, you know, areas you'll be familiar with in Bolsover and Mansfield yeah. and Rother Valley and places like that where... You know, there are kind of clustered trends going on and in the northeast as well. But it's always it's usually the differences that are more important than the similarities. But there's clearly a big trend, you know, of which Brexit's a symptom or a cause uh, for, for Tory support to be increasing in these areas. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the Labour heartlands still mostly elect Labour MPs, but 30, 40 years ago would have had the biggest Labour votes in the country. And over the last period that's votes is fragmented and now the Tories are sweeping it up so there's a real trend there and if calling it Workington Man kind of focuses people on help understanding it better then fine but I think it's of limited use really. Uh, in terms of 
obviously Brexit seems to have fueled the. It certainly sped up some of these changes. In terms of the, the Conservative Party being able to win places that it would never have won, and to be fair, the Labour Party being able to win in places that it would never have won, uh, Kensington and Canterbury and places like that. Uh, perhaps as a result of Brexit. Could you have seen any of these things coming without Brexit? I remember the, the period when we'd have been working for the party at the same time around 2005. I remember thinking, even then, you know, Labour voters were deserting Labour and that was the sort of Blair Brown handover period. And you could sort of feel that there was an undercurrent that people were turning away from these parties. I mean, maybe that was just the point we're at in the electoral cycle. But at times like that, did you think, actually, you could see that potentially there was, there was potential for a huge breakdown between the two major parties and their own electorate? Well, I mean, if you there's obviously going back decades now, there's been the whole issue about the breakdown of the, of the working class vote because of you know the heavy industry, the heavily unionised um, organisation which underlay labour support in these areas broke down with with uh, the Thatcher era, uh, and Labour's vote became much more dependent on multi ethnic areas, big cities, and so on. That's a long term trend, so you could uh, foresee it in that sense. Um, but I, I actually would look back to the t- 2005 election as an example of how these trends can be bucked. And it's actually all about politics, because in that election, um, there was a huge swing amongst liberal um, white vo- voters in uh, professionals in London and elsewhere, the uh, student cities from Labour to the Lib Dems. And the fact that Labour won a majority in that election was because it held on to seats in what are now regarded as Brexit heartlands. So there were, um, no, eight, I think, no, seven Labour MPs elected in North Kent, for example, seats like Brig and Gaul and Great Yarmouth, which are now, you know... Uh, Ian Causey. Yeah. Oh, God, it was Great Yarmouth. Although we oh, had Brandon Lewis. Tony Wright, yeah. Tony Wright, of course yeah. it was, yes. Yeah. The other Tony Wright, not yeah. Cannock Chase. So it was basically these places which we, which now kind of Labour looks kind of disappearing over the horizon to the Tories, which were actually, you know, their their last political hero before Nigel Farage was Tony Blair, uh, and um, you know, it, it was the politics which mattered. And that was an election which was about immigration to a great extent, yes. and Labour won it, uh, and it won it having lost the support of, of middle class voters. So these trends aren't kind of immutable. They can be affected by uh, political choices which the party makes. In terms of Brexit, I tend to think of Brexit more as a symptom of a, than a cause of this. Um, you know, for many, many years, you looked at the issue polling and, and Europe, Britain's relations with Europe was down towards the bottom, somewhere along with pensions and transport and things like that. Uh, and I don't buy the idea that the country has suddenly really become divided over the relationship with the EU. The referendum and everything that's happened since has clearly kind of entrenched people's positions, understandably. But I don't think it's the issue itself which is necessarily driving this. It's the it's the other kind of underlying social and economic issues which brought the Brexit vote, which are going to continue to divide the parties unless the politics changes. So in terms of this election, how hard is it for either of the two major parties to win a majority? On paper, it's pretty easy for the Tories to. I mean, obviously, they just narrowly lost theirs last time. They need a swing of less than 1% uh, to get the seats uh, which uh, they would need to get over the line. And, uh, you know, the the nature of the gains which Labour had last time, the places you mentioned, Canterbury, Kensington, they look quite vulnerable on paper and many others which Labour just hung on to by a few votes. Um, but obviously people are regarding it as much more uncertain because the Tories themselves seem to be accepting they're going to lose 
seats because they've made it a Brexit election, really. So in terms of the key battlegrounds in, in this election, what, what are the regions and what are the seats we should be looking at? Well, there's a number of uncertainties about it. Actually, again, you know, you can't really pin it down to regions. If you look at the uh, the seats which the Tory at the moment, the polls are showing a swing of five or six percent in net terms from uh, Labour to Tory, and that would bring the Tories um, forty or fifty gains roughly, and they're spread spread across all regions. Um, now, everybody's expectation, and I think uh, there's probably. Uh, a good basis for this is that the uh, Liberal Democrats Democrats are going to do particularly well in heavily kind of um, ideologically remain places, if you like, particularly in London, uh, and that that might cost the Tories some seats. Um, Scotland, we really don't know about. You know, pr- most seats in Scotland are marginal to one one way or another, and there's a lot of tactical voting, but there's clearly potential for the Tories to have net losses there. Um, we don't really know the uh, the scale of them. I think if you have to kind of identify what are the, um, certainly as things stand at the moment, what is the, the key kind of group of seats? It's not really a region uh, as such. It's the places where uh, the Tories gained from the Lib Dems in 2015. So sort of uh, southwest England. A lot of them are in the southwest, but it's also places like Lewis and Eastleigh and Colchester, um, and you know individual seats where the Lib Dems have been uh, organised in the past, and they've got MPs elected. They've still got a presence in local government, um, not particularly Remainer areas. So uh, it would, uh, you know, they would need, if you like, to buck that particular trend to win them. Um, but they look like the seats that are most uncertain. At the moment, the Lib Dem vote in the polls has more than doubled. If they were to increase that through the election, get above twenty percent, then normally you'd expect those places to be in play. If their vote's very, very skewed towards London, then um, then obviously it means they'll be doing relatively less well in those areas, and that'll probably help the Tories. Um, for Labour to form a majority, um, looks at the moment where the polling is, and, and given where Labour was last time, very difficult. You know, they could maybe get into a, a relationship with the SNP and, and uh, form some form of government. But in terms of winning majority, what would Labour have to do to, to form a majority? Well, in numbers terms, they need 64 gains, technically. Um, if you line all the seats up, that means they need a swing of around about 5%. Um, but one of their problems, in and, and just to put that in kind of uh, national terms, that would be the equivalent to Labour being about 10% ahead of the Tories nationally. At the moment, they're about 10% behind oh in the God. polls. Um, but one of the complications which you kind of allude to there is Scotland because of those 60 seats um, which are the most marginal for Labour 17 of them are held by the SNP the last well the only poll I think we've had during this campaign in Scotland Labour's voted basically halved since 2017 so it's looking a tall order to you know make those sorts of gains in which case the only other alternative source is the Tories if Labour has to make 60 gains just from the Tories you're talking about swings of up to seven or eight percent to do that, so it's it's a very tough ask on paper. But obviously, you know, with the big, the big caveat with all of this is that everyone remembers what happened in 2017, the way the campaign transformed things, and you know, the Tories have clearly got a very flaky and erratic leader and the capacity to muck things up. So that's why I think there's uh, you know there's a quite a big element of doubt about this. You were working for Labour in 2017. Did you see that result coming? 
Um, no, I watched. Looked at the polls. Uh, I looked at the polls like everybody else, and clearly, um, you know, the polls are giving them, the pollsters are giving themselves a very hard time over 2017 because, uh, quite understandably, a lot of them were quite conservative in their final polls and the way they weighted for turnout amongst young people and so on, and so they fell short of what Labour actually got. But it was actually the pollsters who identified that trend developing and actually where you know what the source of it was and the fact that it was amongst people, a lot of people who hadn't voted before. And so there was a lot of uncertainty about whether it was going to be real. So you could feel that there was something happening. And obviously everybody could feel the dynamic of the campaign and the Tory momentum just kind of uh, falling away. And um, and you kind of, certainly in retrospect, you can get the dynamic. But, you know, I don't think uh, I and I don't think even Jeremy Corbyn and, uh, and, and his office truly believed that they were going to achieve what they did in that campaign, despite the rhetoric, really. When you talk about politics winning and losing elections, in terms of the, the landscape of Britain now, if you were to devise, you know, three or four just just top lines that Labour should adopt in able to, in order to win this election, what do you think they should be? Oh well, and I, know I, that's I, I wouldn't start from here. I think is the uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think that's a very hard one because I think there's a general um, you know uh, issue with this election that. Um, Pretty much all the parties, certainly the Tories, have kind of adopted a um, strategy which is not about inclusiveness, it's not about broadening their base, it's about drilling down harder into what they see as uh, a new core vote and assuming that that's big enough uh, to win. And uh, Dominic Cummings, the infamous uh, strategist who's clearly very influential in this, has, it seems, had this... um, assumption that the Tories have to have a Brexit ele- an election based around Brexit um, in order to uh, to beat Labour because they seem to have sort of lost their confidence in their traditional kind of fiscal rectitude uh, kind of positioning which won, won for Cameron. I saw there was a quote from one Tory um, in The Spectator when they were talking about when the election is going to be called was saying well who would vote for us in May next year who's not going to vote for us now? To which my answer will be, well, maybe people who aren't that fussed about Brexit and um, actually don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister, but you're forcing them down this track. So uh, it seems quite bizarre. You know, I'm brought up on the adage, which I still think is true, that elections are won in the centre. All I see is people moaning on social media about what a terrible choice they've got, what a huge gap there is in the centre. And the parties seem to not want to... um, uh, address that even the Lib Dems you know the we've got the the two main parties now probably further apart than they were even in 1983 yeah and at that time you know the Lib Dems had a very clear um uh, positioning which is you know it's you can have the best of Labour and the best of Tory or a centre party you know responsible with the economy but looking after public services and so on but the Lib Dems have gone down the route of having a very very extreme position on Brexit and having pre-election coalitions with the Welsh Nationalists and the Greens, um, which doesn't seem to me to be a very inclusive strategy. Now, I understand fully that it's got them a lot of profile, and it might well get them some quite spectacular kind of gains, but as a long-term positioning, I'm not sure it's necessarily um, the right strategy for them. So it's a very, very funny election where nobody actually seems to want to be very popular. (laughs) In terms of... How parties use internal and external polling. Yeah. Um, it, it, during your time there, how was it used during a campaign? Well, the um, 
there's a kind of old mythology. You actually don't hear it very much now, but there's an old mythology which used to be held uh, that parties used polls basically to find out what was popular and adjust their policies to yeah. fit that. Well, that's not what they're about at all. Obviously, there's a lot of published polling around, which is mainly around voting intention, which newspapers and others commission because they want to get a story from it. Um, but what parties are interested in is actually drilling down into the detail of that and and how and finding how their messages can be affected by different ways of expressing it and by posing different choices. Uh, polling is all about how you frame the question, um, and politics is about that as well. It's yes. about how you actually uh, put your ideas and your policies and your messages across. And the idea of doing internal polling is to have control over your own questions so you can pose different sort of policies and messages and so on in different contexts put them against other parties and see how they perform. And in the time that you worked for the party, did you find certain leaders were more open uh, to, to accessing that sort of polling than others? I think all the pollers, poll, all the leaders who I worked with were, um, uh, you know, quite, um, they, they, that was the way they thought. You know, they think of, of politics not as a, um, uh, you know, you have your ideas, you're there and the electorate can take all or uh, or leave them uh, it's an interactive process by which you have values and policies and you have a duty in order to win elections that's what you know democracy is supposedly about to listen to that and to put your case in the best possible way and to understand how people respond to it and all the leaders um, did that to uh, some you know believe that to some extent or another how much polling was done largely depended on how much resource there was um, but certainly in three elections which we won, we had a very, very sophisticated operation. I worked very closely with a guy who many will know called Philip Gould, yes. who wrote the uh, the Unfinished Revolution, which is kind of like, I think it's now better thought of on the on the Tory side, but you still come across Tories all the time who say how much they're um, uh, inspired by it. But um, he was he was great at kind of holding the ring between um, the uh, the politicians and the actual mechanism of running elections and developing campaigns and messages and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Jeremy, I think, has a slightly different approach, but there is still polling takes place, I think. I haven't seen a lot of it in the last year or two, but um, as far as I'm aware, you know, Labour is, is asking the questions, but it's probably to a slightly different purpose. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And in terms of the effect they can have over an election campaign, can you remember or recall any times when you've done it, commissioned internal polling and then uh, it's changed the messaging of something during a campaign? Um, I'm sure there are many examples, but it would be very, very kind of um, fine-grained stuff. Really, it would be about um, we use particularly a very good American pollster called Stan Greenberg and a guy called James Morris, who um, worked with Stan as well, uh, <laughs> who had this I mean, American polling is incredible in kind of the level of detail and the length of questionnaires they use and so on. But you would have these very carefully constructed questions with particular wording and then you could analyze the responses according to different voter groups and so on. And there would be, you know, that would be the process by which the perfect sort of formulation of a word or some a campaign material would be developed. There was a, your name appeared in the in the media early in the year when uh, Tom Watson uh, apparently referred to some of your your work in a in a dispute with the uh, the Labour leader. Um, and it says this was reported on Politics Home. So Mr. Watson's memo, which had been seen by Politics Home, said an 18-page analysis by Labour polling expert Greg Cook was presented to the meeting had been amended to dilute its pro-Remain message. Uh, yeah, that was to do with the shadow cabinet meeting, uh, one of many, I think, where they were trying to thrash out their um, Brexit policy. Um, and the big kind of issue, you know, very simplistic question that was being asked was, um, you know. What does is there, has Labour got more to gain from remain or lose? I mean, it's a fair enough question, but it's it's not one like most things. It's very simple to answer. And my paper was an attempt to, uh, you know, be quite balanced and dispassionate about the evidence <laughs> for that. Um, and uh, obviously, as all these things, they had to be kind of like a top line to it because not many members of the shadow cabinet have got time to delve through eighteen page <laughs> reports on uh, local by election results. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's uh, that's fine. That's you know that's how, that's the way things work. I, I wouldn't regard it as being diluted. It was uh, just the politics of it. Um, fascinating exchange you had with Beth Rigby um, on on social media recently, when she was saying uh, Corbyn might not be popular, but his policies are, which is why Johnson and Etta wanted to go to an early election. And you made a very good point that Labour's always had popular policies in every election, won or lost. Who's going to disagree that the rich should pay more tax or that workers should be on boards? Putting utilities and monopolies in public ownership sounds completely uncontroversial. And you. And this is an amazing point you say, but it's superficial. In the same poll, the idea of raising income tax by 1p is opposed by 34 to 49. It's always someone else who deserves to pay more. And there's relatively little disagreement on these issues between party supporters. So what are the implications for that in terms of voting intention? Well, the, the first point I was making was that, uh, as I say, it's the, the point of Labour is to have popular policies because yeah. the idea is they're going to make people better off. Um, and... Uh, so um, in terms of you know, whether people are prepared to pay more tax or not, you know, most cases, probably every era that I can remember, people in theory think it's better to pay more tax than to, uh, to get better public services. But 
usually and quite understandably they don't believe they're the ones who should pay it so uh there's always this kind of mythical rich people uh who uh who are going to be the ones who who foot the bill i think the the, the more interesting point which i which slightly surprised me actually in that same poll which i think i referred to in that same twitter exchange was about um austerity I mean, yes. the word austerity is not used in the question but it's the people uh, pose the choice between um you know cutting the deficit cutting debt rather than spending more on uh public services versus uh, you know, not worrying too much about debt and borrowing and investing in infrastructure and spending on public services. Now, the first one, i.e. the kind of uh, the Cameron type approach, um, looking after the deficit and, uh, you know, cutting borrowing, won that choice quite comfortably. And there's a there's a kind of feeling around, you hear it kind of, quite, the view kind of thrown out quite um, freely that kind of we're in a post-austerity era. And so... Uh, you know, it's, parties have to kind of be offering goodies all around and spending and people aren't too worried about the cost of it. And I don't think that's true. Uh, now, Labour, as I say, its policy basically always is going to end up with more spending. Uh, and it's about how uh, it pays for that and whether it pays for itself. The, the thing I've, I think is, is much more kind of seismic is that the Tories have abandoned this traditional, um, you know, uh, use the word austerity but the fiscal rectitude uh, policy um, because they don't feel any longer that they can fight against the anti-austerity kind of message and that poll would suggest they're wrong um, but I think it's left them quite exposed politically once they get beyond Brexit because they're always going to lose in a spending argument with Labour. So in terms of the Tory positioning I mean to some people you might go well it's quite shrewd because um as well as a Brexit offer, they can say to people, well, you can vote for the Tories and we'll look after your public services. But actually what you're saying is... I mean, in terms of, I suppose, who are the people that that message is going to alienate? Um, well, it's, and where it's not, I mean, go? The, at the moment, the Tories are OK because you, you can see, again, in that same poll, if you look at who people trust to run the economy, uh, the Tories are well ahead. Uh, and they still have that kind of, um, you know, I think, you know... We always talk about is the plurality of people still think of the Tories as being the uh, the party that um, you know you trust to look after the economy, be more responsible. Whereas Labour maybe um, would be a bit more spendthrift. They've still got that, but if they continually just go into um, you know trading spending pledges with Labour, who's going to spend more on this, that, or the other, um, then the differences between them will start to. Uh, to fall away and the fact that Labour's seen as a much more caring party will potentially come to the fore over a longer period. I think it's a strategic issue for the Tories, probably not going to make a huge difference in this election. You know, Cameron, as far as I remember, in 2015 made some huge uh, unfunded spending commitment on the NHS because they felt they needed to head the issue off. But it was in the context that they had this fairly clear economic policy uh, and that basically, in my view, is one of the key issues that won them the, won them the election. But, but Boris is clearly not, uh, and Theresa May sort of paved the way for this, but Boris is clearly not cut from the same cloth on that. In terms of the golden rules of politics, if there are any anymore, um, you know, I was, I'd be no surprise to listeners or to you that I share your view that elections are one at the centre, that uh, Labour is more popular, more effective, and not just that, but... That's where my politics are more closely aligned anyway, let alone out of a sense of uh, victory or otherwise. Um, 
it it always felt to me that people voted in their economic self-interest and the referendum kind of challenged my belief in that. Um, am I right to have that belief challenged? And are, are there any other rules that you think are changing? Um, I, I think I, I hesitate to say there are any rules now, but in all seriousness, <laughs> I think we are. Uh, it's hard to see that we're going to go back to the kind of parties which we've had before, um, you know, on both sides. You know, we, you can see the makeup of the parties and the kind of politics which has taken them over and uh, in the short term you know we're not going to go back to an Ed Miliband versus David Cameron or um, you know Tony Blair versus William Hague type scenario Um, I think things are much more febrile and we you know we've seen so much more fragmentation of you know people leaving their parties going and standing in this election you know numerous constituencies where you're going to get individual candidates have defected or standing as independents people standing aside so I think that's going to, all going to become more common. Um, I think on you know what decides elections, clearly I think people are not going to vote for parties who they believe are going to make them worse off, um, and and don't really trust them to look after you know whatever people understand by being the uh, the economy. But there are some elections where that's probably not a major issue between the parties. Um, probably 1997 will be an example of that, where the Tories had retained some kind of reputation for economic competence, but uh, they got smashed in the election. I think the one uh, I, I always I hold to the view that the single most important thing in any election is the relative popularity of the leaders. Mm-hmm. I think leaders and uh, you know if everybody, if they think of an institution, a party, football club, or yeah. whatever it is, you think you visualise the person. And, and you have a mental image and a, and a view about that person, about whether you like them or not. And I think at a very basic level, the people who decide elections, that's the crucial thing. In terms of Labour's fortunes now and what happens to Labour, as someone who's served the party for so long, I mean, do, do you still have a residual loyalty to them? Do you have that sort of romantic, misty-eyed feeling about the party? Oh, yeah, I love, everybody loves the Labour Party. <laughs> and I do, you know, it's been, uh, it's been very, very good to me over 30 years, you know, and... Um, you know, it's probably no secret to anybody. I'm not somebody who shares, uh, you know, Jeremy's political uh, creed. But then there were many things, and I'd be proud to call myself a Blairite. But there are many things I disagreed with Tony Blair about. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's a wider thing than that. And I feel a, a great kind of gut loyalty to uh, the Labour Party still because it is the institution for progressive politics that's, uh, in the country, and there's still millions of people you know, who vest their hope in it and feel it represents their values. What's going to happen to it? I have no idea. I don't, I couldn't even, wouldn't even want to be kind of very confident about what's going to happen to it in this election, uh, particularly given uh, last time. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to stick around in some form or another, but ultimately its future depends on its leading politicians, the people who want to be its leaders, the people who are going to have its ideas and who are going to, you know, form its next generation of leaders. And do you think in terms of being a, a radical left party, it could ever win a, an outright majority? Um, I think it's, you know, it depends what it's up against. You know, any competition, it's, a, you know, you can only take... Well, elements, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I'd say I, I would always hold to the view that the, that British, the British people, the, the, uh, the foundation of the British electorate is a moderate, pragmatic outlook. And they believe that the system has... Most people, despite all its obvious faults... The system has worked reasonably well for them, and yeah. it's about reforming rather than revolution. Uh, and I, you know, my political view would be that leaders who espouse that position 
are likely to be more successful. Just in terms of perceptions about parties and um, things that have really cut through, has anti-Semitism, do you think, cut through to the wider electorate? Have you, have you seen that in polling? Do you, do you think that would hurt Labour in this election? Uh, there's been some bits of polling, but um, anecdotally, people uh, say to me that uh, you know it is coming up spontaneously on the doorstep. I've done one or two focus groups recently where people do mention it. Not sure they kind of really fully understand the nature of, of what the issue is, but they understand it's a bad thing and that Labour's kind of been tainted by it a little bit, yeah. And in terms of the British electorate's view of socialism and communism, um, even as someone who identified as a socialist for a period of time, I never really, I never really felt that the British public appreciated how serious communism is. Yeah. Uh, and it's just kind of seen as like a kind of cuddly pursuit for, you know, a few quite well-meaning beardy types yeah. who are essentially harmless. With Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, there seems to be a slight more focus from politically interested people in saying, well, hang on, communism isn't a harmless idea. Do you think the public are bothered at all? Well, I think what we always have to remember is, you know, I I kind of have my own kind of view about uh, communism and because of the age I am and the generation I'm from that, uh, you know, up until I was about 25, uh, there was a serious divide in the in the world between capitalism and communism. It's quite understandable that people who are from a later generation don't un, don't have that perspective. And obviously we have a, a sort of a young activist generation now, which where the green issues have come up, where they see, you know, the uh, in particular where the failings of capitalism are coming to the fore. And here's an alternative system. There aren't that many examples of it, how it's working or not working in the world. Um, so why should we be so scared of it, I suppose? I don't know. It's not a term I've heard, I hear used very much still, I don't think, communism as such. No. But um, uh, obviously there's a generation, you know, an element of Jeremy's support in the Labour Party is people who go back to the early 1980s and the campaign for Labour Party democracy and the various fringe left groups which kind of make, make up that, um, uh, that generation of politics. Many of them are very influential still, so it is an element now, but... It's, you know, radical. the radical left is much more diverse than just that. Just in terms of this election, and I know it's really hard to predict, but I'm asking every guest to, to predict as best they can. And it, uh, So Brandon Lewis said he predicted a healthy Tory majority. That might not surprise you. Joe Tanner yesterday, one of Boris's former advisers, said a slim Tory majority. If if forced, mm-hmm. what, would you, what would you guess? Well, I mean, I... Just entirely objectively, the Tories are 10 or 11% ahead in the polls. That would translate into a Tory majority probably of 50 or so. So I don't see any reason in the, reason at the moment in the polls on the face of it why there should be a great change because most certainly the Tories' vote seems pretty solid. There's not kind of really a very soft underbelly. They've pretty much swept up most of the Brexit party support in recent polls, so they're probably around about their resting point now. Um, and so you'd be reckless to predict anything other than the Tories winning it and probably with a reasonably comfortable majority. But obviously the caveat against all of that <laughs> is there's, the point of having a campaign is it's to change people's minds. And, um, you know, we've got a very febrile electorate, a very febrile party system. We've got, uh, as I say, a leader of the Tories, completely untried, not been very impressive so far, pretty erratic, could well, you know, the Tory campaign could well kind of uh, hit stormy waters uh, between now and then, which might change that. I think in terms of the pattern of the election, 
I think what to look out for, and I suspect we'll see, um, for example, the YouGov um, sort of multi-level regression predictions of different seats coming out shortly. And I think what that will show at this stage, certainly, is that the Lib Dems are doing well in those seats in London, which we talked about, uh, and that the Tories are at least competitive, if not ahead, in a lot of those northern well, we call them northern, but actually a lot of them in the Midlands and one or two of them are actually in the south as well, the kind of seats which we're talking about. Um, the Tories are probably at this stage ahead in them, but I think um, there's, a, you know, there's an awful long way to go. It sounds very kind of bet hedging. Um, but if I was, if I was to put, have to put my house on something, I'd say something a Tory majority of around about 40 or 50. I mean, that would be, that would feel like an earthquake. I mean, I remember how... I remember seeing the exit poll last time and just what a shock that was. Yep. I think so many people out there would be shocked to see a Tory majority of that size. But you're absolutely right. At the moment, that's what the evidence suggests. And well, Yeah, that's and that's what people expected last time. In fact, bigger. Uh, and in the Tories themselves, right up to election day, I think internally, that's what they expected. And all the anecdotes coming back from the ground, real anecdotes, were... You know, reinforce that there was a lot of people switching away from Labour, but clearly the nature, as we said, of the kind of the new support which Labour was accumulating was that it wasn't the sort of people who would be spoken to by the conventional sort of canvassing means. Um, there was a lot of there was huge kind of social media networks going on generating uh, this vote, particularly the under thirties vote on a scale never before, and so it was a different sort of election. There's always the danger you're one election behind and you assume that this one's going to be like the last one. Uh, the evidence, I think, uh, particularly because now, unlike 2017, you've got a viable Lib Dems uh, up and running as well, uh, is that I think Labour will find it much tougher to re recreate that kind of bandwagon. Um, but the exciting thing about elections is that things can change. They can indeed. Greg, thank you so much for coming in. No problem. It's been a real it's pleasure. A pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Well, there you go, Greg Cup. What a fantastic guest. And there's something really reassuring. And I always found him reassuring when I worked for Labour. But really reassuring about talking to someone who has a, a really broad, not just a broad view, but a deep view as well, really understands what's going on, can really put things into context and really understands the direction of the parties in relation to the public they are seeking to, to govern. So I can't thank Greg enough for coming in. Very rare. Uh, does this count as a media appearance, but maybe a public appearance uh, by Greg Cook in terms of... Uh, you know, doing an interview and, and let me pick his brain. So I'm really grateful to him. And of course, that is the third prediction we've had. Uh, and so far, people saying a, a, a slim to healthy conservative majority. But of course, this is early in the campaign. There's a lot of road left. Who knows what happens next? Email your predictions to political party podcast at gmail.com. And I'll see you tomorrow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.